Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We're sorry to have to announce that Bamani Shakur has been given an execution date. Yesterday, it was announced that Shakur, who's been on death row since the Lucasville prison uprising in 1993, has been given an execution date of November 26, 2023. He'll be releasing a statement shortly, and we'll also keep you updated. We'll have a link to our episode about Bamani on our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org, and you can find more about Bamani's story at keithlamar.org. We have a brief update from Leon Benson, who speaks with us from inside Pendleton Correctional Facility. Apparently, the San Francisco Bay View has been barred from Pendleton. Here's Leon. Hey, thanks again for providing this platform for us on the inside to speak out what's going on. And uh, we definitely will report it, call it how we see it. Uh, this is Leon Benson, and uh, I definitely want to inform everybody out there about what's been going on with this ship here at Pendleton Correctional Facility concerning the Bayview, the San Francisco Bayview newspaper. Well, for those of you who do not know, back in December 2015, Shaka Shakur published an article in San Francisco Bayview called Do Black Lives Matter Behind Prison Walls? And once the administration seen it, they started to systematically block all Bayview newspapers in Pendleton facility. Other facilities around the state except the San Francisco Bayview, except Pendleton. So what happened, people who was receiving the Bayview, they filed grievances about it. And the grievance response from IA and administration was that we couldn't receive those newspapers because it had unauthorized prisoner correspondence, you know, in the letter and in and, and the news because other prisoners did articles, which didn't make sense. But they was trying to back it up by the DOC correspondence policy of 02-01-1. One zero three, where they restricted the, the the correspondence according to section, I believe it's section five. Yeah, section five, unauthorized prisoner prisoner correspondence. But this didn't make no sense. So we knew obviously it was because of the content. It was a lot of inspirational content coming from Bayview, from other prisoners around the country, activism, protests from around the world about different issues that made sense to people that was incarcerated and in deprived communities of color or other marginalized communities in the United States and the world.
We recently reported on more than 100 prisoners calling a labor strike in the Rush City Prison in Minnesota. The following statement from the Twin Cities Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee explained the gains these prisoners made as a result of the strike as well as next steps. Quote, in the wake of work strikes by at least 157 prisoners, Minnesota's Rush City Correctional Facility has reversed a policy change that would have doubled the time prisoners must wait to receive canteen items that they purchase. The change would have increased delivery delays from one week to two for items including hygiene products, over-the-counter medication, and food. Prison staff announced this reversal in an internal memo dated December 6th, and the prison modified its daily schedule on December 10th to allow staff to catch up on canteen deliveries. Information from prisoners in Rush City reveals the number of participating strikers was higher than initially reported. According to the prisoner Demetrius Dobbins, the 155 day and night shift anagram balloons workers who stopped work were joined by a number of kitchen workers. Moreover, many workers did not show up for work and gave low production on the job. Strikers are pleased to see the reversal of the policy, but say the canteen issue was only the final straw leading up to the action. According to Eric Johnson, the work stoppages were due to a buildup of abusive behavior from some correctional officers, poor medical treatment, a lack of programming, and an employer who continues to make it harder to make a dollar. James Jemming agreed, adding, It would have been nice if over 200 people did not have to put their safety and relative freedom on the line for someone to see or listen to just how the change would affect the population here. Following the canteen policy reversal, Rush City prisoners we spoke with are looking to the future and to bigger goals. Dobbins argues that the overcrowding problem should be central right now. Because of overcrowding, a majority of the prison population are not provided adequate health care and rehabilitative programs. Some see policy changes like good time and decreasing time served in prison, including for those with life sentences, as central next steps, while to others, continued conversation with administration is a prominent theme. To Kashan Pierce, it is crucial for now and the future to come together to build a good, peaceful, and respectful relationship between the Rush City Correctional Officers, staff, and inmates. Adds Jemming, such a relationship would remove a huge percentage of the violence in the system. For years, the Department of Corrections and especially Rush City Prison have suppressed our voices, our ideals, but not our thoughts, says Pierce. We are just fed up with being treated like our voices don't matter. Some of us have said enough is enough. Also in recent news, on December 11th, 10 prisoners barricaded themselves inside a cafeteria unit in New York's Rikers Island Jail. They were protesting the slashing of another inmate in an instance of prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner violence. An extraction unit broke through the barricade and pepper sprayed the prisoners into submission. The Courthouse News Service reported that the Death Penalty Information Center, a nonprofit that provides information on the death penalty in the United States, just released its annual year-end report. This report indicates what it calls a climate change in attitudes toward capital punishment. There's a diminishing support for the death penalty and lower rates of executions in this country. According to the report, juries and judges sentenced people to death 41 times in 2018 and 25 executions took place. The number of prisoners on death row fell below 2,500 for the first time in 25 years. Also this year, a 20th state abolished capital punishment when Washington state decided the death penalty was unconstitutional because it's racially biased. The report notes that one prisoner has been exonerated from death row for every nine executions conducted. A Gallup poll taken in October found that 49% of Americans thought the death penalty was applied fairly.
This week, we have the first of several interviews that were conducted this fall in Sao Paulo, Brazil. KiteLine contributor Mikol Siegel was there to teach a course in American prison history at the State University. Siegel's academic host introduced her to an activist civil servant at the Secretariat of Penal Administration, who connected her to the members of a work release program. In this program, people come from prisons all over the Sao Paulo metropolitan region to work in the Secretariat, doing everything in the building from accounting to crafts to janitorial services. Siegel ended up bringing her University of Sao Paulo students off campus to the Secretariat to hold conversations together with the folks on work release. Together, the two groups of students crafted research and interview projects, ending with the interviews that you're going to hear over the next few weeks. The interviews were conducted in Portuguese, translated by the University of Sao Paulo students, and read by people here in our Bloomington studio. We'll hear more of these in the upcoming weeks, but for now, let's get started. Our group is made up of Lorenzo, Almir, Felipe, Tatiana, and me, Barbara. Today is September 19th, 2018. We're going to talk about re-entry into society. Throughout this conversation, we will address four main issues. First, what is re-entry? Second, how can it be put into practice? Third, should some form of re-entry programs be available from the beginning of the sentence? And finally, we will defend the idea that re-entry should begin from the moment a person begins to fulfill their sentence. Re-entry is the reintegration of the person who is convicted again into society. When he or she suffers a criminal penalty of the deprivation of liberty, he or she is taken from the society and is isolated. From the earliest part of the trial, the person is out of their social world. What does re-entry aim for? It aims to take this person who is totally outside social life and reintegrate them again into society, either through the mechanism of work or through projects, things that will help him or her integrate gradually back into society. Is there a discussion on why to use the term re-entry instead of the term re-socialization or what other terms are used? Usually the term used is re-entry, that is, to reinsert. Since the person was taken out and will be put back, will be inserted again back into society. We talked a little about this, about the term, about the word itself, which is very strong, not an easy concept, since it has within it the idea of a journey a before and an after, a passage that is not so simple. So we can also question the very idea of re-entry. The term assumes a retroactivity. During the time you were outside of society, what did you do? Why did they have to be taken out of society? But is that the real problem? In this difficult exercise, what are the things that can be done when someone is arrested so that they do not become totally isolated from society? We'll get into that. When you're in prison, you're out of society due to breaking a rule. And this rule isolates you. So the process of re-entry should not begin when the person is placed in the minimum security regime or when they gain their freedom, but from the moment the person was arrested. Because if you were taken away from society because you weren't respecting rules, then there must be some mechanism, something to prepare you to go back. If you're outside, you need to be brought back in. And what if this placement starts from the beginning of your sentence? 
because in Brazil, the first thing you do is you go to a maximum security prison, then you go to a medium, and then from there, a minimum, and then you gain your freedom. But what if, instead of thinking about social reentry only at the end, we thought about it from the beginning? Wouldn't people be better prepared psychologically and emotionally? We understand it must take place from the moment your freedom is taken away. So it does not have to be some sort of reintegration. Because there is only the concept of reintegration if at first the person was disintegrated from society. And this process should not happen. So we want to think about reentry from the first moment. Tatiana explained a little about how it works here in Brazil. First, there is maximum security, then medium and minimum, and then the person gains his or her freedom. Yeah, there are three stages. Maximum security, where you're totally deprived of your freedom. They put you inside somewhere, and in that place, you stay. Then you have the medium. The law states that in medium security, the prison is a place where you go only to sleep. But that's not how it works, because many do not go out to work. Many cannot study outside. So in a way, the medium, or we say semi-open, is not so semi-open. It's more of a semi-closed, because it means a prolongation of the closed regime. If you don't work or study or work inside the prison, you remain in the closed regime. In the semi-open, the medium, the person's only allowed to leave the unit, go to work, and come back in the afternoon. Normally on Saturday and Sunday, you don't go out, but there are exceptions. For example, I take a course at USP at the University of Sao Paulo on Saturday, so I can leave. But my right is to go to the course and come back. Almir also takes a course on Saturdays at Poli. That's the engineering college of the University of Sao Paulo. I work from Monday to Friday here in the coordination of social reintegration and citizenship. On Saturdays, I do a pre-college exam course, and one Sunday a month, I get out to. Please, can you explain a little bit more this building of the SAP, the Secretariat of Penal Administration, is the building of the... Yeah, of the Coordination of Social Reintegration and Citizenship. This building that we are in, this huge 13-story building in downtown Sao Paulo, is SAP, the Secretariat of Penal Administration. It works on behalf of reentry. It works for the person who's getting out of prison, so it tries to help. There is one section in here on the second floor, the CAEF, Family and Advocacy Center, where you can get the documents you need, all the assistance, all the support you need when you get out of jail. You have it right here in this building. Also, they have projects that are supposed to be a part of the medium, the semi-open regime, but they didn't even have them at the unit where I was, at Putantin, for example. There was a project there, for example, where we worked from Monday to Thursday in a park, and on Fridays, we would take an administrative assistant course. So now I have an administrative assistant certificate. That course lasted two semesters. That's some good kind of support. Courses like this are the result of projects started right here in this building. The course must be previously approved, of course, then it's financed, then teachers are hired, and they start working with us. In Belen, if I remember correctly, they had a cooking course for, how do you say it, transsexuals, transgender people. It's a professionalizing cooking course. All people who took that course are in the process of professionalizing so that when the person leaves prison, he or she does not leave with empty hands. Almir, what courses have you been taking? A painting course. For me, it was an excellent course. Very good. I finished it, and now I have a certificate. So you have already commented on the fact that to participate in these programs, you must be selected. 
What, more or less, is the percentage of people in the semi-open regime who are part of these programs? Well, each unit, that is, each prison in Sao Paulo, is allocated a certain number of places, of seats in the classes. There, inside the prison, you register for whatever the vacancy is that you're interested in, and then, if you're lucky, you're selected. For employment, it's different. Here, in the coordination office, it's a little different. You have to have a certain profile to come and work here. In my case, the one who selected me was the production director. She asked if I had a specific profile, if I had taken any computer courses and so on. In Belang, there's a test. It's more strict. You have to take the test and pass it, and then you can get in. How many people took the test, Omi? I don't remember. Uh, 30, 30 candidates for six spots. There were six approved people. So in fact, while all these projects are very important, there are far fewer jobs than people would need. Yeah, that's right. It's a very big demand, and the vacancies are very few. Is, is that the only way a person has to get in touch with society before they leave the prison? There are other jobs, but not necessarily here in this building at SAP. What are the other opportunities? Well, over in San Miguel, there are two companies that work with production. That's more manual work. There are some girls who work with accounting and timing, but most of the services are house cleaning related. Only here at SAP, we do more office work, thus the need for greater selectivity. Do you get the same salary as a person who's not in jail? How does it work? Okay, it's like this. It's a minimum wage. That is one standard minimum wage in Brazil. That's how salaries are calculated, by how many minimum wages they are. And then they deduct a percentage. There's the MOI, that's, uh, that means indirect labor costs. That's 25% of the salary. That's what gets deducted. Then on top of that, 10% goes to your savings, and you can only withdraw that on the day you earn your freedom. You can also get your salary when you have an exit, basically a furlough, which is a day out of prison, like on holidays. Usually, we can use our accumulated salary through vouchers. Are there shops that accept vouchers in Belém? No. So, in the women's prison, there are. You mark some items, and these items are deducted from the money that's there in your account. And then when you have a furlough, all that's available in your account, you withdraw, except the 10% of the savings that you accumulate and that are only withdrawn at the moment of freedom. So, what is the MOI? It means indirect labor. 25% of our salary is discounted to pay for internal or indirect labor. So what is this internal or indirect labor? That, that's who's working in the prisons. It's the girls who work in the institution, the girls who clean, who work the grounds, the girls who make our meals in the kitchen, the girls who clean the rooms of the directors. It's for these people who work in the prison for its upkeep. That's where the money goes. So you're paying people who work inside your unit? Exactly. Since we're in the custody of the state, the state has the obligation to pay all of my expenses. They should not be funded by me. But that's not what happens. Who, who pays for the monitoring device, for, for the ankle bracelet? The state. That's one difference between Brazil and the U.S. Unless you damage the unit, then you have to pay out of your pocket. If I'm running away and I break it intentionally, I have to pay. Otherwise not. Who pays for this is the state. Another point that we were discussing earlier and we're not talking about now is how the reentry process should not be thought of only as in terms of professional qualification and education, skill building after prison, but to build a new life or to continue the one that they had, but also how one needs to be emotionally prepared for it. Exactly. There are people who gain their freedom but are not prepared for that freedom. 
they spent a lot of time in jail. I was in prison eight years and eight months. So my first exit, my first furlough, was a reality shock for me. I went out, and everything was different. Everything had changed. The streets of my neighborhood were different. A long time had passed. So much had happened. Society evolves day after day. I didn't know how to use a cell phone, and that was embarrassing to me. I arrived in a store that required you to have the app of the store on your phone to check the product's prices. And this was embarrassing for me. I kept asking the girl what the prices were, and she told me to download the app. And I was like, what's an app? I felt totally out of touch. So you need to be emotionally prepared because when you leave, that life you had is no longer possible. You no longer have your job, and most of the time, your friends have moved away. Are you emotionally prepared to start over? And when I say restart, it's starting over from scratch. You have to rebuild yourself financially and as a person again because prison not only deteriorates people's outsides, but really their inside. I think the biggest damage that detention does is inside. It's in the mind of the person, of the human being. You feel less. You start to devalue yourself. You'll feel like a nobody if you don't really work the emotional angle hard. I talked a lot with the psychologist of the prison that I was in. I was trying to read a lot because reading helps a lot. And besides, as much as I did when I left, I saw that I was not psychologically prepared. But I had all the support of my family. What about someone who doesn't have the support of their family? How is it for them? How long had you been in jail before you had your first exit or furlough? Six years, 10 months, and 17 days. I counted every minute. What do you mean by being prepared for freedom? To be prepared for freedom is to prepare yourself professionally, as we already said. But that doesn't just depend on you. You have the selection process, and there's not vacancies for everyone. Exactly. And psychologically, you have to put your feet on the ground. You have to know, I want to change. I want a transformation. And you have to believe that. So you need to be emotionally prepared. Prison makes people sensitive. And at the same time, it makes you create something like a wall surrounding you, impenetrable, so you don't get hurt in that situation. You end up creating a barrier. So often, it gets even harder for people to get close to you. I felt that very much in myself. I had a hard time talking to people. My first furlough was on Christmas. My family had gathered all over the house. I saw that even I, who had always been an extroverted person, who used to kiss and hug all the people I loved, in that moment, I had a hard time embracing people. It bothered me a little. I had to break this barrier. Now I was locked up. Now I'm on furlough. This is my life. My life is not that, isolation. I need to get along with people. I need to interact. Sometimes I was in a place and people asked me, what's going on? What's up with you? Because I was quiet, watching. And they would say, but you're not like that. Because people didn't know the Tatiana in jail. They remembered the Tatiana outside. So when I came home, they hoped to find that Tatiana. But I was no longer that Tatiana. So you get a little cold, you know? Then with time, I said, I want to go back to my life. So I started to force myself to interact. At every furlough, I've had nine. Each time, we have a barbecue and gather the whole family in one place. My sister comes from Belo Horizonte. My brothers who live far away come, and we get together. And in these meetings, I try to interact with everyone. Stay in the wheel. Talk. Play. Because I need to get back into this world. 
The world of jail is the world of isolation. Not only physical isolation from society, but isolating you from yourself. You isolate yourself. You isolate yourself from the affection. You isolate yourself from the embrace. You isolate yourself from the conviviality. You isolate yourself from everything. That's why people get stuck. They come back cold. But it's not that they want to be cold. It's just what that environment did with them. I read a phrase this week, which I found very beautiful. They may even try to mark me, but it will not leave a scar. The system might even try to mark me, but it will not leave a scar. Elmir, what does it mean to you to be prepared for freedom? There's a saying that I always remember. It's from a song. I don't even know who sings it. This is how it is. You have to believe that the dream is possible, that the sky is the limit, and that you, love, are invincible. Bad time will pass. It's just a phase, and, and you, need to, you need your parents side by side with you. It's a saying I've heard that touches me very much. We know that we have a difficult time, but that this time will pass. I hope to be prepared to raise my head and face to everything that lies ahead. Can we finish with a quick question? Do you think that there will be a time when the prison will no longer exist as a form of punishment? Look, it looks like a utopia. When Professora Micol spoke the first time about abolitionism, I'd never heard of it. I'd never thought of it, never considered this hypothesis. After we had that meeting where this was debated, I started thinking about it. I'll tell a story quickly. When I did my criminological exam, to go into the semi-open regime, you need to do an examination called criminological, the social worker told me a story of the mothers of Africa. They're a tribe in which women, when they become pregnant, go to the middle of the forest and create a song for the child she's waiting for. That song is unique. It's just made for that child. Hence, in all important moments, birth, anniversary, marriage, that song is sung for the child to remember its origin. And when that child makes a mistake, some offense that goes against the rules of that tribe, that child is placed in the middle of a circle of people, and that song is sung. To make him or her realize that he or she isn't that mistake, he or she is much more than that. So today it looks like utopia, but I believe there will come a day when there will be another form of punishment, not the one that discriminates against you, that humiliates you, that isolates you, that ignores you, that keeps you away from the people you love, but a form of punishment that makes you go back to your essence and see that you are not a mistake. You are a human being. You are much more than a mistake. And in that sense, it's not a form of punishment because in my view, punishment involves suffering and mistakes, breaking the law. We all do it. We're all subject to error. It's not just being subject. We all break the law. What we have talked about is also a bit of that justice which is not punitive justice, but a restorative justice. It's a justice that puts us in the position of equals, as people who feel violated in their rights and people who, at the moment, violated certain rights. And that we can restore this without taking humanity from each person, because that mistake does not make you stop being who you are, a human being. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, 
KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. You can follow us on all social media platforms by searching for KiteLine Radio or find us on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.